Well, if you can turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 for this morning, Colossians chapter 1. As we continue to celebrate the birth of our Savior, as we will soon see, Christ's birth is not only an event that a child can understand, which we just saw a little while ago as Tim read that story, but as we look into Colossians chapter 1, we see that this is a story that is impossible for the most genius of minds to fully grasp. You ask the question, why? Why is it so profound? Well, because what took place on that first Christmas morning is a paradox. It's the wonder of all wonders to ever take place within human history. This is why theologians refer to the birth of Jesus by a variety of terms, terms, phrases we don't usually use. We have the phrase, the incarnation, that's familiar to us. But then you have the phrase, the hypostatic union. Don't know if anyone's used that this week. You have the word kenosis, the kenosis. Terms, again, maybe not familiar to us. And yet each of those terms are descriptions trying to explain the uniqueness of Christ's birth and the majesty of his person and the wonder of the manger. Colossians 1 is a text that is perplexing. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I want you to listen to it against the backdrop of everything that we have sung and heard and read. Every story of Christmas you're familiar with. Start in verse 15. We read that he, referring to Christ, he is the image of the invisible God firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, you can stop there. To understand the importance of what we've just read. These verses comprise what many consider to be the most important Christological, that's the study of Christ, the most important Christological passage in the entire New Testament. It's called the Great Christology. Six verses that stretch the very limits of our mind. This is a passage that brings us into the inner sanctum of the Trinity, the relationship between the Son and the Father. It spans the whole created order. It reaches back to the creation of the universe, points ahead to the summation of all things. And the point of the passage is this. It is to overwhelm us with the wonder and the majesty of Jesus. That's the point. And the purpose is found at the end of verse 18. 
The purpose is so that Christ himself, Christ alone, will come to have first place in everything, make it personal, everything about you. That Christ would have no rivals within your life. That he would be worshiped as the unique son and savior and Lord. And that everything else, everything in this world, every temporal thing would pale in comparison to him. That's the point. That's the purpose. Let's put it in the context of this morning. Here are the wonders of Christmas. The wonders of Christmas. There are three of them that will highlight three wonders that show the uniqueness of Jesus' birth, the majesty of his person, and his supremacy over everything. Everything. Begin with verse 15 and the first wonder. Wonder number one. This human child was fully God from all of eternity. This human child was fully God from all of eternity. It's the first paradox, the first wonder. Begin in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Let's state it this way. Jesus is the most perfect and complete expression of eternal God himself. And the word image here, it's the Greek word akon. It refers to a copy, a representation of something. Carries with it the idea of depiction or illustration. It refers to visibility. So theologically speaking, when it refers to Christ, it means revelation, manifestation. And according to verse 15, Christ is the image the revelation, the making visible of the invisible God, referring to God the Father. So God the Father is spirit. And thus, because God is spirit, he is invisible to the human eye. Exodus 33 puts it this way, you cannot see my face. You cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. So no man has ever and can ever gaze upon the infinite and eternal Father. First Timothy says this is because he possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. That's his nature. His nature is transcendence and majesty Sinless holiness, divine splendor. These are barriers. These are barriers between creation and the creator. And yet amazingly, all of that changes when we fix our eyes upon Jesus. Here's one of the most staggering mysteries of the Trinity, the paradoxes, the wonders of Christmas the invisible God actually becomes visible. The Father becomes visible, not in and of himself, but visible through his Son. Why? How? Because the Father and Son share eternal deity. 
To see the Son is to see the Father. It's John 1.18. No one has ever seen the Father, seen God. But the Son has expressed him, made him visible, explained him. And note the verb in verse 15. He is, is the image, the second person of the Trinity, did not become the image of God. He's always been the image of God. What changes at the birth of Christ is that he takes upon himself human flesh forever, forever. This is why Jesus could say to his disciples in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's profound. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Again, not the person of the Father, but the essence, the nature, the godness of the Father. And amazingly, we can see the godness of the Father through Christ and live. Drop down to verse 19 here. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure. This is compassion and mercy, grace upon grace. The Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, all the completeness, all the totalness of deity to dwell, to settle down, to make its home in him, in the eternal son. This is the compassion of the father, the grace of the father. Look over to chapter two, verse nine. For in him, in Christ, the son, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So this is the first wonder of Christmas. We've heard it before, but I would just simply say, be amazed again at this. Not be so comfortable with it. This is eternal God in human flesh, the image of the invisible God. Leads to a second wonder, wonder number two. It builds on it. This helpless child was the omnipotent Lord who created all that exists. This helpless child was the omnipotent Lord who created all that exists. When Christ was born, he was. Helpless. He was helpless in every sense of the word. He's confined by strips of cloth. He's requiring nourishment from his mother to live. He was laid in a manger. Two years later, he needed protection from Herod who wanted to kill him. He grew. We sing that song of Jesus, no crying he made. That's not true. Jesus cried. There's humanity there, full, true humanity. It's helpless. And yet notice how verse 15 concludes, Christ is not the helpless one being referred to here, but more than that, he's the firstborn of all creation. And the word firstborn here, prototokos, has nothing to do with chronology we're not saying when Jesus began to exist, the person of Christ to begin, no. This is referring to importance and supremacy. If Paul wanted to say that the person of Christ began, he has another word to use, but he doesn't use that. He's emphasizing primacy and power and preeminence over all things. Supremacy of Jesus's rank and dignity. 
In fact, look at verse 15 again. We probably could, should translate the phrase firstborn of all creation as this, the preeminent or the superior one over all creation. And why is Christ the preeminent supreme one? Continue verse 16. For, here's the reason, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, drop down to the end of the verse, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Amazing, the one who stood outside of creation becomes a part of his creation. Before Christ entered that manger, he was not bound by the created order. Again, grace, compassion, mercy. Break the verse down just for a moment. Verse 16 begins with those words, for by him, by him, all things were created literally in him. The idea is in him is the sphere of all that's created, all the laws, all the purposes, the complexities, the intricacies, as Tim would say, how clever from the story, how clever. All the complexities of creation resided in him in the infinite wise mind of the eternal son. And yet when he comes to this earth, he grows in wisdom. In him here takes us back to eternity past. Creation was in his domain. That's the idea. To which Paul adds at the end of verse 16, all things were created, another key phrase now, by him, he's the agent, he's the worker of creation. So not only did the wisdom of creation reside in Christ's mind, but all of creation actually came into existence through him. He speaks. He's the builder of creation, he's the foreman of this universe. Paul's not shy here. He's attributing to Jesus what the Old Testament taught of God himself. The Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens, Psalm 96. Psalm 146, the Lord, God, made heaven and earth. Paul says, that's Christ. That's the person of the Son. To which Paul then adds, look at verse 16 again. All things were created by him. And then another small phrase, profound, it's a wonder, and for him. This is the ultimate end of creation. Not only is Christ the architect and foreman, he's also the final goal, the final goal for which this entire created order is moving. It's to his glory, his name. Everything from the smallest atom to the largest star, all of it has been created to serve Christ's will and contribute to the glory and worship of his name. And if that's not enough, notice what Paul adds at the end of verse 17. In him, all things hold together. So this now brings us to the present time. 
shows us that Christ is also the present day sustainer of this entire created order. So if you want to be amazed tomorrow, tonight, Christmas Eve, you want to be, be amazed tonight, look up if there's no clouds. If there is, just imagine it. Look up at the millions of stars in the sky. There's more than 13. <laughs> and remember that you are on a planet that hangs on nothing in a vast universe, a planet that spins at a velocity of 1,038 miles per hour while traveling around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. And then ask yourself this question, why does the earth not spin off its axis or diverge from its orbit? Why? Here's the answer, verse 17. Because in him, in Christ, the one who sits at the Father's right hand now, the one who came from heaven to earth, was born for us. In him, all of that is held together. It's the wonder of wonders. This is wonder number two. The helpless child is the omnipotent Lord who created all that exists and sustains it. Leads to the final wonder here we can highlight. Wonder number three. We heard it earlier. Let's summarize this baby in a manger was born to die in a cross. This baby in a manger was born to die on a cross. Drop down to the end of verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That's incarnation. That's Christmas. And verse 20, through him and only him, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his sons, Christ's cross. And here is where this passage should utterly boggle our mind. This is the high point of these six verses. Everything is building to verse 20. Verse 15, notice, Christ is in his nature ontologically equal to the invisible God. He's preeminent over all of creation. Starts there. Verse 16, he's omnipotent, eternal creator. Verse 17, he's the sovereign sustainer of the entire created order. Verse 19, he possesses nothing less than full deity. But now we come to verse 20. It's all building to this point. Here's the purpose of all of that. Here's the reason why Christ left the glories of heaven to come to a fallen world. This is why we celebrate a birth of a child it is because Christ came, verse 20, to reconcile. He came to reconcile, to remove enmity between the sinner and holy God, to remove all barriers for peace with God. Ever since the fall of man, there has existed a breach, a gulf between God and his creation. And ever since the fall of man, sinners have been helpless to reconcile themselves to holy God. 
This is why Christ came. This is why Paul includes verse 20. He came to be the great reconciler, the redeemer. He came in order to die for the sin that barred us from God's presence. He came to offer himself to his father as a saving sacrifice for all who come to him in saving faith. Look at verse 20 again. Christ came from the glories of heaven to make peace, to make peace through death, to make peace through the blood of his cross. This is why humanity and deity united in the person of Jesus. He needs to be human to represent us. He needs to be God to exhaust God's wrath. That's why Christ is born in a manger in order to die on a cross. Here is the wisdom of God. Because God cannot die. If the wages of sin is death, God cannot die. But God in human flesh can die and did die. And then in the passage, he was resurrected from the dead. This is the message of Christmas. Why? Because this is the message the angel gave in Matthew 1.21. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people. He will die for his people. He will rescue his people. He will reconcile his people back to God by saving them from that barrier saving them from their sins. These are the Christmas wonders that should floor us. It's an incomparable birth, a baby born to die. And it's a wonder that requires one right response. There's one right response, and that is this, to honor and glorify him to honor and glorify him, to be overwhelmed by his matchlessness and majesty, to be humbled that this is what salvation from sin necessitated for you, to repent from that sin that barred you from fellowship with God, turning from that sin. Christ paid for it. You turn from it and you rest only on Christ's perfect life lived for you and sacrificial death for you and glorious resurrection for your reconciliation. Verse 18 summarizes the only right response. We must confess Christ to be who he truly is. Eternal Lord, omnipotent creator and reconciling savior from sin, to the degree, so that, verse 18, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything about you. That's the one response. We bow before him. We confess him to be not only Savior, but Lord. For that is who he is. He's the majestic Savior for us. Father, we are thankful that we can celebrate the birth of this majestic one. We are thankful that there has 
there was humility and love and compassion and grace to leave that face-to-face relationship Christ had with you in order to take upon himself human flesh and then die for us. Floor us with that, Father. Raise us in praise and give us a faith that sees Christ as supreme and preeminent. May he have first place in our lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.